Imagine a dinner table in rural Kentucky, 1955. You have your cornbread, fried potatoes, greasy beans, mixed pickles. And then there's one dish that marks a seismic shift in Appalachian life. What was it? A jello salad makes the meal. Like this dazzling beauty, a glamour salad made with new apple jello. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, what can that glamour jello salad tell us about changes to life on the farm in 1950s Appalachia? Laura Smith takes us to find out. I've long believed in the alchemical properties of jello. It's a powder made from ligament and bone. Add water, and all of a sudden you have a brightly colored jiggly solid. My fascination started as a child in the lunch line at the DNW cafeteria in Corbin, Kentucky. After snaking around the metal counter with my marbled plastic tray, I was electrified by the dessert case a rainbow of perfectly cubed jello, neatly portioned in parfait cups. Along with 7-Up, a cure-all tonic in my mother's house, Jell-O was a healing food, sustenance on a sick day home from school. After my second child was born, I discovered that along with the miracle of birth, there was a call button in the Lexington Hospital I could push on my bed that would bring a Jell-O delivery. I wore that button out. Each time a nurse appeared with a cup of red or orange Jell-O, I felt like a kid again. Last year, I heard from a friend that Jell-O was a food many women talked about in an oral history collection of mountain women at Berea College's archive. That got me curious. Today is July 12, 2012, and we are here in St. Mary's, West Virginia, in the home of Miss Betty Bailey. Today is May 24, 2012, and I'm in the home of Addie Mae Bicknell. Miss Bicknell has graciously agreed to be interviewed for this oral history research project titled Gathering the Stories of Appalachian Foodways. The women in the collection were born in the 1930s and hailed from eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. These interviews tell us that families grew, put up, and cooked almost all of what they ate. Down in the bottom, we had a, oh my gosh, we raised some strawberries and we, had, we planted our potatoes and we had corn and, and green beans and tomatoes. And Meat was primarily chicken, pork, or wild game that they processed to store for winter. Honey. Oh, yes, we love to go hunting. And you never went when the moon was shining. You always went hunting when it was cloudy, dark out. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> Back then, it, a lot of people had apple orchards at home. The women recall harvesting and foraging fruit. Apples, yes, but also plums, persimmons, and wild grapes. Desserts were usually reserved for special occasions. And my mom would use different types of apples for different things to make, like she'd make uh, the sour tart apples, she'd make apple butter and uh, dry those for pies to make apple pies. But jello? I never thought of that as a particularly distinctive part of Appalachian cooking. And then I heard the interview with Mildred Arvin, who was born in 1943 in Drip Rock, Kentucky. My mom, she'd buy Jell-O, and uh, I know we would eat a lot of Jell-O. Everybody <laughs> liked it. You know, it was different. <laughs> yeah. Because we hadn't had that before. They hadn't had Jell-O before. One of the... Um, women that Katie Bills interviewed in West Virginia 
just kind of mentioned in passing, well, that was before Jell-O. And it was just sort of like a aha kind of moment. That's Margaret Dotson. She teaches an Appalachian Foodways course at Berea College in Kentucky. Her students, Katie Bills and Courtney Bignall, conducted the oral histories now housed in special collections at Berea's Hutchins Library. She says the moment with Jell-O was a revelation. We had never really thought about Jell-O as being a gauge for what people did in terms of cooking. And it really came down to, did they have electricity so they could have a, a refrigerator with a freezer, with the ice, to the things you need to make Jell-O. And so for this woman, her whole cooking history, I guess, was before Jell-O and after Jell-O, which for me, that was a real kind of like, oh, I never thought of that before. But Jell-O became very, very popular after electricity came in. And, and in our part of the U.S., that happened a lot later than most everywhere else. There were parts of Appalachia that did not have electricity until the 1960s. And for a lot, it was the 1940s. To appreciate the full impact of what Jell-O meant, we need to understand what life was like before it. Prior to electricity, families used traditional preserving methods to store food for slim winners. They cured hams, canned blackberries, strung beans to dry, and fermented cabbage for sauerkraut. Betty Bailey was born in 1937 in Clarksburg, West Virginia. When I was a little girl, I remember mother had the big stone jar that she put her sauerkraut down in that one. And, and she'd cut that cabbage, and I thought that was the best stuff when you just put the salt on it, you know, after you'd fresh cut it. Oh, my gosh, I'd almost make myself sick just eating that. <laughs> Addie Bignall was born in 1920 in Redlick, Kentucky. She remembers how her mother prepared apples with the sulfur-smoking method to store for the winter months. She'd put them in sacks, like cloth sacks, mm -hmm. and put a stick across a barrel and hang a sack on each side and then cover it over to let it stay so long to let it soft. And then she'd take them out and put them in fruit jars. Hmm. I think I used to almost taste them sulfured apples. They were good. For food that had to be kept cold like milk, families used caves, spring houses, and root cellars. Frances Davis was born in 1924 in Middle Island Creek, West Virginia. And that's how her grandmother did it. She had a cave down around the hillside. I was always afraid to go in that cave because I was afraid of snakes because it built up out of stone, you know. Just a big stone cave is what it was. But she had shelves all around in there, and it was cold in there. Despite her fears, Frances would be sent to the cave to get food for meals. After we washed our hands good, we'd have to go down there and take that rock off and then take that board off of there and reach down in that old cold brine and get a handful of pickle beans. Or if we was getting sauerkraut, we'd have to get do the same thing, to get a, a pan full of pickle uh, kraut. Oh, I hated that. Stick my hands down in that old sour brine. Oh, it was cold in the wintertime to do that. In a world where reluctant little girls were sent down to a cave to fetch smelly, fermenting cabbage, imagine the wonder of a new refrigerator with shiny, futuristic jello in it. Here's Margaret Dotson again. Jell-O had been around since early part of the 1900s in the cities, but they had methods of getting ice or electricity to put the refrigerator and put the Jell-O in the refrigerator. So it was sort of like this, oh, now we're modern. Now we have electricity. Now we have a freezer. Now we have ice. Now we can make these Jell-O recipes. Coming up. 
electricity, and jello come to rural Appalachia and change daily life for women on the farm. That's ahead. There is that donor music. Every region has its signature sweets. The American South is no different, except that it may have more of them. There are pies that are only served at holidays here, cakes that recall birthdays and other milestones. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois hails from Louisiana, and he has a long list of sweet desserts that he shares on the menu of the New York City restaurant Blue Smoke. There are beignets reminiscent of French Quarter New Orleans, pineapple upside-down cake like the kind served after Sunday lunch, banana cream pie that's creamy and fluffy all at once, and Blue Smoke also offers chocolate layer cake. How many layers? If you find yourself in New York, you'll have to pay a visit to Blue Smoke and order it to find out. Learn more at bluesmoke.com. And now back to Laura Smith in Kentucky. The appearance of Jell-O in remote Appalachian kitchens was a direct result of rural families connecting to mainstream American culture through the very real connectivity of going on the grid. In 1935, President Franklin Roosevelt created the Rural Electrification Administration, that's the REA, as part of his New Deal policies. The goal? To bring electricity and telephone service to the nation's most rural areas. The program offered low interest and long-term loans to governments, farmer cooperatives, and nonprofits to run power lines to isolated areas. Power in the Land was a 1940 campaign film produced by the U.S. Film Service, the USDA, and the REA. It was directed by acclaimed Dutch documentary filmmaker Joris Ivens. A cinematic score and epic imagery of the American farming experience gave a window into the hard daily life of farmers. It's good land here. Not prime, but good. Long settled land. The film chronicles the daily life of the Parkinsons, a farm family living in Appalachian, Ohio, near the West Virginia border. Bill Parkinson was born here in 1889, the year his father bought the farm. On screen, Bill's wife, Hazel, appears outside near the farm's pump house. She's a thin woman wearing a short coat over her farm dress and apron. She vigorously works the hand pump, collecting water into a metal bucket. Everybody has to help. If you marry a farmer, that's the first thing you learn. This is 1940, but the farm woman's day is long. They don't complain to women like Hazel Parkinson, but they know on an August morning how hot the stove is going to be at noon. They may not say much about it, but they wish you could just turn a faucet to get your water the way you can in town. They know, and their children know, the work that goes into raising food for a nation. The authoritative voiceover is intended to accomplish two things. First, to make the case to the American public for why this large public investment was needed. Here on the farm where it's needed most, electricity is hard to get. Power companies want a profit. They get it in the city where people are scrunched up together, but the farms are left in the dark. Three farms out of four are left in the dark. 75% of all farms in this big, inventive country. Seems wrong somehow. And secondly, the film encouraged farmers to form cooperatives, 
They would then apply for government funding to bring electrical power lines to their hills and haulers. In short, it sought to convince them to trust the federal government. Now they talk it over, the country way, the slow, cautious decision of the people. Electricity, about time we got around here. I'd sure like to light up the barn and the house too. Power company won't do it. But I hear there's a new kind of power, government. Well now, how do you go about it? I, I ain't for it, but I'm ready to be convinced. Don't have to take it unless we want, but find out about it. Government power for our farms. Kentucky was among the least electrified states at the start of the REA's work. Only 3% of the state's farms had electricity. Fewer than 10% of West Virginia farms were electrified. In the Berea Oral History Collection, most of the interviewees reported that their electricity came in the early 1950s. Betty Bailey remembered when her family got electricity in West Virginia. Like I said, we did not have electricity on, on, on King Ridge until 1953. And must have moved there in about 1940. So 13 years we lived on the ridge without electricity. We were only a mile from Route 16. And we were only a mile, there was another mile from our house to where the electricity came to. But they wouldn't build a line between those two places. And so we did not have electricity and we had an ice box that we kept and mother canned meat and we cured meat. And, we didn't and what was the first change they made on the farm? I remember in 1953 when we got electricity the first thing my mother did was buy a refrigerator of course and then she bought an electric stove. Um, had the house wired so that she could have all those appliances. Well in 1953 I was a sophomore in high school and she bought a hot point refrigerator. Would you believe that that hot point refrigerator is in my garage right now and still running and keeping I, uh, beverages cold for the kids? Sixty-some years later, that refrigerator is still going. Refrigeration changed everything about household and farm labor and the roles farm wives were expected to perform. Mountain women were no longer tied to wood stoves, canning massive quantities of produce. Now they could cut corn and freeze it. Instead of cooking beans outside over an open fire for hours, pressure canners could do it in 30 minutes on an electric stovetop. It also changed domestic aspirations. Part of it was the modern kitchen, the modern woman. That's Margaret Dotson again. It was really a move, at least in my interpretation, it was kind of a move from blue collar working. We can move up to be middle class. We can now have more fancy foods, more fancy desserts. And there was no shortage of encouragement to join the rest of the country in celebrating the modern home cook. There was all kinds of advertisements and the whole cooking pamphlet thing from the early 1900s on really had a big impact on how women cooked. So if a company had a product, they had to provide recipes for people to try. And uh, Jello was highly promoted in all the magazines, you know, from the early teens to 20s, 30s. They would have these really quite artistic pictures of, look what you can put on your table, as opposed to the mashed potatoes or the biscuits or the cornbread. Electricity meant rural women could join in this aspirational conversation about who we were as Americans by making quick and easy but impressive-looking Jello centerpieces for the table. Berea College's archives are also home to a collection of regional community cookbooks. Starting in the late 50s, many of the cookbooks start containing desserts with names like Wonder Salad, 
that count everything from mayonnaise to chopped nuts to Coca-Cola as ingredients. Basically, if it was an ingredient in your kitchen, you could suspend it in a jello mold and the ordinary became extraordinary. Again, it was, we can now have what other people have. Now I've got the refrigeration, I can do it. So it was sort of like moving into middle America, midstream. Everyone else is there, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. I live on a farm in the Kentucky County where some of the women in the collection were born. We're members of our local electric cooperative, but the talk around here is about a different set of lines making their way along the ridges. With federal dollars, some of the same cooperatives from the 30s are getting into the broadband business with the hope that high-speed internet will revolutionize our lives. Rural co-ops across the country are deciding to offer broadband in response to frustrations on farms, ranches, and in small towns where being unconnected hurts business. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, estimates 39% of America's rural population is without access to fixed broadband. For once, my corner of Kentucky is ahead of the nation. The chair of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, even came to our county a couple months ago for a press conference about what we're doing. And I'm going to be talking about Jackson County in other places now. And so, my God, I've been in those hollers. And if they can do it, you can do it, too. Our county has some of the fastest fiber internet in the country, thanks to a local cooperative. And it's already made a big difference in my family's life. But for communities to the east of us, many homes are still on dial-up. I don't know how the future of rural Appalachia will change with the coming broadband expansion, and what, if any, changes it'll bring to women's work in the way we eat. Maybe future oral histories will be divided into before and after Pinterest. For now, the promise of a high-tech future and a more traditional mountain way of life coexist. The weather is warming up, and it's the beginning of another growing season. In the coming months, my Facebook feed will be filled with proud photos of my friends' marathon canning sessions and humble brags about their foraging hauls. But at my local Save-A-Lot, there's still shelf space dedicated to Jell-O, a reminder of the last time the future came knocking. Flavors like Jolly Rancher Blue Raspberry are hard to reconcile with the taste you'd find growing in the natural world around here. While I'm not willing to give up on my belief that Jell-O is magical, it's never been about the taste. It's about the memories I associate with it. For the farm women of eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, Jell-O was a marker in their lives for the convenience, modernity, and the changes in labor it represented. But what are the memories of taste that linger on their palates and minds? Those are reserved for the southern fruits of their childhood. But fresh cherry pie was my favorite pie. Now, I'm not talking about cherry pie filling you buying a can today. I'm talking about the fresh cherries picked off of the tree and made into pie. I still can taste that today, and I've never been able to duplicate it. Laura Smith is a co-founder of the Appalachian Food Summit and a beginning farmer who lives, writes, and occasionally makes a glamorous jello salad in Egypt, Kentucky. This piece was originally written for our sister print quarterly, also called Gravy. You can find that version on our website, southernfoodways.org. Music for this episode was by Driftwood Soldier, Blue Dot Sessions, Weenland, and Computer vs. Banjo for Diagram Collective. 
Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam. And our intern is Dana Bialik. Just ahead, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If today's podcast talk about Jell-O has you hankering for desserts, you might appreciate some of the Southern Foodways Alliance's sweetest films. We have one on mile-high meringue pie in Arkansas, and another on fried pies in Nashville. We even have a cake versus pie debate filmed at a recent symposium if you need to reinforce your opinions on why one is better than the other. Solidly camp pie, gotta say. They can all be found at southernfoodways.org, and conveniently, that's the same website where you can sign up to be an SFA member. Membership dollars support our work, including Gravy, which, by the way, I'm happy to say, was nominated just last week for a James Beard Award for Best Podcast. Fingers crossed, y'all. Coming up on Gravy, a liquor so hard to get, it inspires usually law-abiding citizens to contemplate extreme measures. Sometimes you gotta got to meet a guy in a parking lot somewhere. I mean, I, that's sort of what I figured I'd have to do. And I just, you know, in my head, I never imagined that it would get any sketchier than that. I mean, even though it's, you know, black market whiskey, it's still whiskey. It's still a legal product. I mean, we're not talking about heroin here. We're partnering with the podcast Criminal to bring you that one. That's ahead. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember... Make cornbread, not war.